Hello, everybody. I can see you flying in the door. We have a fantastic guest with us tonight. Um, I, I turned down national TV tonight to be with you guys. So. <laughs> oh, that, that was really good of you. <laughs> no, normally, actually, actually, normally I'm in Dallas and Fox News actually sends a limo and they pick me up and I have to put on a suit and everything. It's, oh, man. It's a big oh, deal. And I said, no, no, you know, I'm joining... I'm joining the ladies with of New Zealand tonight. I'm not. Oh, you say that. Well, thanks for having me. I'm commonly uh, brought on national TV, multiple networks and shows, uh, primarily to give uh, my evaluation of the data and uh, bring some fair balance to the discussion on the pandemic response. Yeah. Oh, we're really honored that you've decided to join us instead. We've, we've won over, who would it be, Tucker Carlson or someone like that? Talking <laughs> <laughs> to us instead. So everybody's flying in the door. We're already up to over 2,000 people. Well, this is our largest uh, number of registrants for this webinar this afternoon. It's afternoon here in New Zealand. It's Thursday. And this is the most people we've had register. We had over 3,500 register. So let's see how many have been able to pretend they're working and come and jump on. Uh, and do this with us instead. So we're up to almost 2,200 people. Welcome on in. It's lovely to see you. Yeah, we just hit, we're about to hit 4,000 people registered. So it's very encouraging. Thank you all so much that you've been sharing it with friends and family, this important information. Hi, everybody. Welcome in. Thank you for coming. It's so good to see. Well, we are nearly up to 2,400 people here. That's amazing who we are. So I'm Alia, we've got Libby and Claire, and together we have Voices for Freedom. Libby and Claire are both um, lawyers by training and my background is in education. But also we have, all three of us have experience in creating and creating and growing online groups and communities. So some of the things that we thought were important for you to maybe know about what we've been up to in the last few months is we've had some pretty good wins. So recently we fundraised for a hundred billboards or screens across the country. We fundraised $80,000 in 48 hours to do that. We also fundraised for a campaign of 2 million flyers that have been sent out across the country. Um, our most common donation is $28. It's by people, everyday Kiwis who are um, donating to this cause and making this happen. So we thank you for that. That's amazing. Um, we've collaborated with the New Zealand doctors um, speaking out on science to run 25 online and in-person events with audiences numbering in the thousands. We have these on, uh, online weekly webinars that through lockdown there every couple of days uh, where we are spotlighting local and international guests and experts like we've got Dr. Peter tonight. Um, we are under constant attack in the media. People might have seen the last couple of days we've had some pretty nasty um, articles written about us but we are not giving up we are here and we're just going to keep on going so with that I suppose we kick off the show yeah I'll introduce Peter um, Peter thank you so much for being with us um, you've got so many letters after your name I won't go through all of them but chief medical advisor the truth for health foundation president cardiorenal society of america editor-in-chief cardiorenal magazine editor-in-chief reviews in cardiovascular medicine Senior Associate Editor of the American Journal of Cardiology. You are a internist, cardiologist and epidemiologist, maintaining ABIM certification in internal medicine and cardiovascular diseases. Peter practices both internal medicine, including the management of common infectious diseases, as well as the cardiovascular complications of both the viral infection and the injuries developing after COVID-19 from Dallas, Texas in the USA. 
Since the outset of the pandemic, he's been a leader in the medical response to the COVID-19 disaster. Um, his many publications, over 46 peer-reviewed publications on the infection and commented extensively on the medical response um, through uh, the news. On November 19, 2020, he testified in the US Senate Committee on Homeland Security. I know a lot of us have watched that. Uh, he has had one full year dedicated to academic and clinical efforts in combating SARS and has reviewed thousands of reports, participated in scientific congresses, group discussions, press releases, and is considered one of the world's experts on COVID-19. So we are very honored to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Mm, absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm wondering if you can take us right back to the beginning, because how did this all start for you? You're, you are not just a scholar, but you also have a clinical practice. So what happened right back at the beginning with people presenting with what then turned out to be COVID? Can you give us a little bit about a little bit of a story about how things started uh, coming, becoming relevant for you? No, I may have been the right person at the right time in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. I went to college and then medical school, undergraduate here in Texas. And I went off to the University of Washington in Seattle and I did my residency. And, and back then um, it was common afterwards for residents uh, to go into service. And many of the residents were, became CDC officers. Uh, I joined a rural health initiative and, and was a rural practitioner for several years, I went to a remote place in the United States and I really had to learn to be resourceful. It's just myself and another internist there. I came from Duke University. I did that for several years and then I trained in epidemiology at the University of Michigan and went off and launched my career in cardiology. But when this hit, I saw it uh, within a week or two as uh, what I've termed before, I was on Tucker Carlson's show. I told Tucker, I said, it was our medical Super Bowl. This became something clear to me as a doctor that this was a time of crisis and it's a time to step forward. And I felt compelled to step forward as I started to see things play out. Uh, I saw patients that weren't treated early for the infection. And this is an infection that looked like it gave us plenty of time to get organized and start early treatment. We know for any other infection, if we start early, we always improve outcomes as opposed to letting an infection get progressively worse over time. And so uh, I moved quickly. I organized my resources. As you've pointed out, I have a lot of publication power. I'm considered one of the most published people in medicine uh, in the world. And um, I have a lot of medical authority, if you will. I organized the first team of doctors to um, synthesize uh, a combination drug treatment for COVID-19 uh, in the ambulatory phase. We published this in the American Journal of Medicine, still the most frequently downloaded paper for the journal for the entire year to show you the degree of importance that it has. And we operated on a, a, a simple concept that this was a complicated illness. It was obviously fatal in some. It involved three major processes, viral replication, inflammation or cytokine storm and thrombosis. No drug was gonna be a miracle cure. It was ridiculous to think that a single drug was gonna cure the illness. Like any other infection, HIV, hepatitis C, staphylococcal infections, we had to use drugs in combination. And uh, uh, we, we looked in the literature for signals of benefit and acceptable safety. We employed the precautionary principle, meaning that we were not gonna wait for large randomized trials. That takes five years or more to get. We weren't gonna let people die while we're quibbling over the evidence. We are gonna use our judgment, very senior doctors, US-Italian collaboration, 
And then we followed that up with even a larger group, 57 authors uh, in reviews in cardiovascular medicine, dedicated issue on COVID-19. And we added in additional drugs we could use in the armamentarium. And in short, it takes about four to six drugs used in a sequence combination to bring even the highest risk patient through COVID-19 at home without having the discomfort or the complications of hospitalization and, and avoiding death. It's very important. In COVID-19, there's two important outcomes, hospitalization and death. And I think, I think anyone could accept the idea that we have a pandemic, and as long as we could be treated in our home and safely recover without being hospitalized and not, without losing our lives, we could get through the pandemic. And that really is the, the genesis of uh, the early treatment initiative in the United States, and now it's a worldwide movement. And, and you talk about the high risk. I think that's something that's a really important point because we are in the middle of a, of a significantly harsh lockdown here in New Zealand. And we have people lining up for seven hours to be tested for this thing with these PCR tests. I, I don't understand how someone high risk who's very sick can manage that. So it begs the question, who is being tested and who really is at risk of this? Well, let's talk about that. One of the things that became clear early on, we learned this from the Chinese, is that this viral infection was amenable to risk stratification. So the viral infection meant different things in different people. So for example, in a, in a child, I just, today, I just saw a three-year-old child, for instance, that child's got COVID-19. It's nothing more than the sniffles. The child is plain and it's perfectly fine. It's going to be over with in a few days. And conversely, um, I just found out about someone much older who passed away in the hospital. So it can be anything from a very mild uh, common cold or upper respiratory illness in a child to a fatal illness in uh, an adult, particularly an older adult. So we know age was an enormous factor in risk gratification. We also learned that medical problems, it makes sense because this is a, a devastating illness in the respiratory tract that heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, prior cancer, uh, because the infection trips off a unique type of inflammation that depends on a certain uh, cytokine called interleukin-6, interleukin-6 is produced by fat cells. So it turns out that obesity turned out to be a very important risk protector, uh, type two diabetes. So we were able to figure out that age under 50 without risk factors, there was less than a 1% chance of hospitalization and death. And now there's very sophisticated calculators. The Cleveland Clinic has an online calculator. It's very useful. Anyone can calculate what their risks are. Less than age 50, we basically don't have anything to worry about. The risks are far less than 1%. We can manage our way through it. Most people don't require treatment. Just prudent measures get through the illness. Age over 50, though, then the risks become over 1% and progressively higher, and we have to intensify our approach. Mm. And you talk about uh, treating patients. You've obviously seen patients with COVID today. You must have some sort of immunity or at least some, you don't worry about it by the sound of it. Well, that's true. Um, uh, now I've uh, had COVID-19 in October of 2020 and I, I did the right thing. I got involved in research. So I was a research subject myself. It's common. My wife had it at the same time. Uh, and by the way, when COVID-19 strikes, about 85% uh, of the transmissions in the home. There's not that much action outside the home. The Chinese and US studies show that. So in fact, I, I think I probably contracted it from my wife. In order to get COVID-19, you have to be in a room with somebody face-to-face -face really for about three hours. It has to be that type of contact. And you're only gonna get that at home typically with a spouse or your kids. 
And so um, uh, I contracted in October 2020. I did have sequencing done. And the sequencing, uh, the virus is actually, if you, if you were to look for the whole virus sequence, you find it in the GI tract. And the Chinese learned this a long time ago. They do anal swabs because they want to sequence the whole virus. Um, and I was involved in research where we did have specimens for the GI tract. And I had the alpha variant, the British variant. And, and so that's fortunate because that's a less severe variant than the original Wuhan uh, wild type variant. That's what hit Milan and New York and New Jersey. The mortality rates were through the roof and we're nowhere close to that now since the virus is mutated and it's less virulent. Mm. And so what sort of things you talked about having this ho at home strategy for people to help themselves. I mean, I think a lot of people in New Zealand right now, we have Delta apparently in New Zealand. Uh, we have, I think yesterday there were 60 cases. It still doesn't, it's still not a lot of people that have got the uh, virus around and many of those are just having positive PCR. So we have that whole issue of who really is a case. Uh, but if you're at home, I think the one thing we have heard absolutely no information about is what do you do if you think you've got COVID and you're at home? Well, let's pick up on testing uh, first. And I mentioned I had the UK uh, variant by sequencing, but normally uh, one just knows if they have COVID-19 or not. And since I recovered from it, uh, like today I saw patients, uh, I can't get COVID-19 again. So that, that's not possible to just keep getting COVID-19 over and over again. It's, it's one and done, thankfully. So, you know, I was free to see patients and not worry. I didn't wear a hazmat suit or, or anything like that. It's, uh, uh, it's certainly wonderful to be COVID recovered. In many ways, it's a gift. Natural immunity is robust, complete, durable. It's, um, it's unbreakable. So natural immunity is wonderful. And uh, so I'm able to, to go about my, my business. Uh, probably the most important thing employers or governments or anybody would want to know is, is, is who are the naturally immune people and, and how are they critically positioned in their jobs, particularly businesses. Uh, it's far more important to know than, than who's taken the vaccine. It's actually who's, who's got natural immunity. The vaccine immunity doesn't stop COVID-19, but natural immunity does. Now, with respect to testing, uh, we have antigen testing, which actually identifies the nucleocapsid. It actually identifies the virus itself, the ball of the virus. The nucleocapsid is analogous to the nucleocapsid of SARS-1. So we assume it's SARS-2 because SARS-1 is now uh, uh, not a prevalent infection. But the PCR test, as you implicate, is most common. The PCR test is actually looking for small fragments that code for uh, one or two targets, typically the polymerase. And uh, that is subject to the fact that it's not actually looking at the virus itself, but some uh, fragments of RNA. And so it's subject to actually becoming false positive, particularly if the cycle thresholds continue to amplify. We keep looking, 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 looking. Sooner or later, a piece of uh, human RNA or uh, another microbe uh, will turn it positive. So it's very important that the PCR test is only applied in those acutely sick. And, uh, and the regulatory bodies in the United States have never approved the use of the PCR test or the antigen test for that matter in people with no symptoms, never. And the reason being is because if people don't have symptoms and we do these tests, they're more likely to generate a false positive test than to generate a true positive test. So they are only approved as a diagnostic aid in an acutely sick individual and under no circumstances should be testing be done on asymptomatic individuals. So that means no weekly testing, no punitive testing. There's testing people getting on airplanes. Um, and none of that is, indica is indicated or clear by any regulatory agency 
And as of June 25th, the World Health Organization says no more, stop it, don't do it anymore. So if anybody, anyone listening here is in a leadership role and you're in a, a school or somewhere else and you're trying to make a decision about testing, just use testing in acutely sick individuals, typically done by health uh, professionals. Mm-hmm. I know you've talked a little bit about um using particular treatments for people who are ill with COVID in hospitals. Like I heard you talk about, I'm going to read it, monoclonal antibody um, infusions. Uh, My understanding is, does that require someone who has natural immunity to be donating antibodies or is that some, how would the, how is that created that that technology? Um, You know, one of the products of uh, this accelerated research we have with COVID-19 is the development of antibodies. Now, a monoclonal antibody means it's basically manufactured. So it's manufactured in a system. Right. And it's, it's complex how they're made. But uh, for instance, there are uh, dozens and dozens of monoclonal antibodies used in clinical practice. So you may be familiar with Humira or Remicade or um, Repatha or Praluent. Th- these are all monoclonal antibodies. So they're manufactured. They are fully humanized. And what we have in the United States and Canada and elsewhere is we have several manufacturers who make them. Uh, the first one came out in November. It was bamlanivimab made by Lilly. And subsequently, we had the Regeneron combination. Uh, we simply call it that because the antibodies are too difficult to um, enunciate. Uh, and President Trump, former President Trump, received monoclonal antibodies as an upfront strategy and then sequenced uh, drug uh, use. So Trump, in many ways, uh, could have had a really rough time with COVID-19. He really breezed through it. So as we sit here today, U.S. and Canada, I know those markets well, we have uh, pre-purchased 500 million doses of these monoclonal antibodies that are on the shelf. Our lead is by Regeneron, and they're indicated for acute treatment, uh, typically of seniors, those over age 65, You know, two or more medical problems. We know they're going to have a rough time with COVID-19. They get a one hour infusion. We can do this in a secure room, an emergency room or a clinic or a nursing home, one hour of observation, and then they go home and we can start the other drugs. So uh, these in a sense are pharmaceuticals. Uh, they do have emergency use authorization. They're just as approved as the vaccines. And uh, I certainly want Americans uh, and Australians, Canadians, uh, Brits, others to know about it. But once somebody's hospitalized, there can be a form of treatment called polyclonal antibodies, which is what you mentioned, and that's called convalescent plasma. That's where multiple people who've recovered COVID-19, they donate plasma, and then that's concentrated. If they have enough antibodies against COVID-19, it's concentrated, and that can be given by infusion. Uh, that's uh, uh, currently less uh, commonly used in the United States. It's uh, My understanding is on the way of being phased out, but I recently had a patient who received uh, three rounds of that. Uh, in the hospital, that can be used additionally. But I want you to think about this, the virus in the first few days is replicating and it's moving in and out of the body and it's what have you, but there's not that much virus available to be hit by an antibody in the blood. Most of it's inside the cells, it's in the respiratory tract. It's not really amenable to a monoclonal antibody. I wouldn't want anybody to think that, boy, that's really gonna solve the problem. It's getting some of the virus out of the way, but there's billions and billions of viral particles. So what we can do early on, which is very interesting, we can even do this preventively, and a lot of people don't know about this, the virus is in the mouth and the nose for several days before it really takes off in the human body. And the American Dental Association in concept and in in practice by anti-infective dentists have now innovated, and there's research from Singapore and elsewhere that support this, of actually using anti-infective dentistry 
techniques in order to reduce the viral load in the nose and the mouth. And interesting, in the United States, dentists have been in the mouths of people all year long, and there hasn't been, been no major dental outbreaks because they use these principles. So they are as follows. You can take liquid betadine or povidone iodine, put just a few drops in a glass of water, it'll turn brown, and then swish and spit that twice a day. Don't swallow it, swish and spit twice a day. You can dip a, a, a swab or a Q-tip in it in the nose twice a day, and that reduces the viral load in anybody, particularly if you go out shopping or you come back. It's good practice. Those who are having contact teachers and others, that would be good practice. And uh, if the iodine is not tolerated, there's an allergy, another substitute would be uh, hydrogen peroxide dilute, uh, sodium hypochlorite dilute, or even just uh, Listerine. We have Listerine in the United States, a mouthwash, the original Listerine. Mm -hmm has some antiviral activity. So we always start with oral nasal uh, hygiene first. Uh, a lot of people don't know about that or even talk about it, but that's a, a very good approach. Uh, uh, and then we move into the, the um, high-risk patients, monoclonal antibodies, and then into the oral drugs in sequence. Mm, that's really interesting. And we have heard nothing about any of that here. Nothing. No one has actually spoken about how to manage COVID. Uh, we hear that there's not enough ventilators. That's really the only thing we're hearing. We can't access things like ivermectin, I know has been spoken about a lot. And, and uh, But we hear nothing. I find that really quite interesting. Um, but it is, my, yeah, that is interesting for me because we don't, as far as we're aware, we don't have a good basis of natural immunity here. Uh, we can't access antibody testing. We haven't been able to uh, at all. And um, we can't get T-cell testing as far as I'm aware either. So we are feeling like a virgin population when it comes to COVID. Now, whether that's true or not is another story, but we are unable to establish a baseline of, of um, immunity. You know, I think you're right. I've been uh, uh, to New Zealand, so I know about Kiwis and uh... I love your place out there, uh, particularly I, I lectured actually uh, in Auckland and all over the island. I know about glowworms and, and uh, <laughs> yeah. the Maoris, and that's a terrific place. I love New Zealand. And, but I do, I agree with you. I think New Zealand is an at-risk population, and the virus seems to be moving around the globe, hunting for susceptible populations. Um, we have not seen, outside of the originally in China, we have not seen major Asian outbreaks. The Philippines, Indonesia, things are, uh, you know, despite large populations and some densities, we haven't seen what we've seen in the United States. And there may be certain susceptibility patterns um, uh, of interest that we just somehow in the United States, we can't get away from each other. I don't know what it is, why, why we're the leaders in uh, cases the leaders in mortality, despite having the best uh, medical system we claim in the world. And uh, we're only one sixth of the world's population. So uh, it's interesting how America has the dubious uh, honor of being the leader in COVID-19. Now let's get into the drug treatment though. Assume mm -hmm. New Zealand is susceptible and what if COVID-19 comes uh, uh, knocking and we have an individual over age 50 who gets the characteristic signs and symptoms. So it's not like a cold. COVID-19 is different. It starts off with like a frontal uh, headache, fever, sinus congestion, 
loss of taste and smell. The sore throat is a, is a lesser component of the illness. And if you can't get a sore throat, sometimes it's an upper, almost like a laryngitis, but it's not that burning sore throat for three days and then the explosion uh, of sinus congestion that you see the cold, it's different. Uh, body aches, characteristic signs and symptoms, get a PCR or antigen test, confirm the diagnosis of COVID-19. One of the first things that can be done is what's called a nutraceutical bundle. And the nutraceuticals are vitamins, they're not curative, but what they do is they help uh, level the playing field with respect to deficiencies. And there's a lot of data on this. Uh, for instance, many people, older people on diuretics, they become zinc deficient. So we wanna use zinc. Zinc actually inhibits the viral polymerase. So it has a an anti slight antiviral effect. Vitamin D, vitamin D typically 5,000 international units, uh, vitamin C 3,000 milligrams, a polyphenol supplement called quercetin or quercetin, 500 milligrams twice a day. That's called the nutraceutical bundle, replacing deficiencies, not curative, but every study that's looked at that is when someone's deficient, they have a higher rate of hospitalization and death. So we kind of use that um, mm. logic. After that, we want to use uh, intracellular anti-infectives. And like any infection, we use two or more drugs. Do you know in a staph infection, we even use two drugs. So it's not common. So our most common combinations are hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin plus doxycycline and azithromycin. So let me explain this. Hydroxychloroquine works in three ways. It's the most widely used drug to treat COVID-19 in the world, and it has been so from the very beginning. Hydroxychloroquine impairs the entry of virus into cells by changing the endosomal pH. It actually helps bring zinc into the cell, to, and zinc inhibits the polymerase. And then hydroxychloroquine changes the configuration of defense receptors on the cell surface called toll-like receptors. And then it also has an anti-inflammatory effect. We use it in lupus and we use it in rheumatoid arthritis. We know hydroxychloroquine works inside cells because we use it to treat malaria. We use it for malaria prophylaxis. So hydroxychloroquine, wonderful drug, supported by 250 studies, 250. The only studies that really have, uh, have been flat for hydroxychloroquine, they don't show harm, but they just are nutritional, are very small uh, randomized trials. There's five of them in the hospital late a lot of people on ventilators, only two placebo-controlled trials. And the doctors were deciding the endpoints. The doctors were deciding um, you know, how much oxygen people get. So they weren't really solid trials, fewer than 750 patients. So um, uh, hydroxychloroquine used on the inpatient uh, units of many countries, not in the United States because of those neutral trials, but clearly hydroxychloroquine does not cause harm. The outpatient studies in general, 250 strong are supportive. Now, the other drug is ivermectin. Ivermectin is an anti-parasitic drug. The drug itself has won a Nobel Prize, uh, 60 supportive studies. It impairs the nuclear entry of the virus uh, uh, into the human nuclear cell. It also has a, a, some effect at the anti-spike protein. And it's a little bit more diverse than hydroxychloroquine. It, it seems to have very positive data, both outpatient and uh, for inpatient use. So we use doxycycline or azithromycin because there is an overlap with some bacterial components that can affect the this the, uh, the the sinobronchial tree, and it makes sense uh, to use them. They're not critical, but it's either uh, uh, doxycycline or azithromycin. They work within the cell too. After that, we attack the inflammatory phase. We use inhaled budesonide in the United States as pulmicort in a higher dose, but there are two randomized trials that support doing that all the way through, reduces the risk of hospitalization, have that ready to go, doctors prescribe it. Then day five or pulmonary symptoms, we, we use oral prednisone. Uh, some countries use hydrocortisone or dexamethasone, but in reasonable doses, typically five days with the taper, that's reasonable. We use oral colchicine, 
which is an anti-inflammatory drug proven in the largest randomized trial out of Canada called the co-corona trial. Uh, that was wonderful. Well, you use that for 30 days to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death. And then after that, it's blood thinners. Uh, everybody over 50 ought to be on aspirin, 325 milligrams a day, uh, carry for 30 days. And then high-risk seniors, we use injectable blood thinners called low microwave heparin or oral anticoagulants, apixaban, rivaroxaban, edoxaban, and dabigatran. So that's a lot to digest, but these were in the key publications uh, that I published, and they're now part of home treatment guides. They're used worldwide. Doctors can use these drugs in sequence combination. Doctors can actually do this over the phone, and we work with patients and pharmacists. I do this every day now, and I've never let a high-risk patient in my practice go untreated. And I think it's only those who get no treatment. Those are the ones who end up in the hospital or heaven forbid die. Mm. And again, we hear high risk, you know, presumably a lot of these things are going to be unnecessary for people who are just average Joe Blow who comes into contact with COVID. You said about New Zealand, I think the interesting thing for us down here is when COVID was racing through the Northern Hemisphere, it was summer here. And so these things around vitamin D, you know, we, we have a hot summer, good amount of sun, we're a very outdoors culture on the whole. Um, we know that people were ill with COVID-like illnesses through that summer. They've been telling, you know, we've, we've heard about it, some of us have experience some of it um, and so it's unclear how much we were exposed to at a time when we may have had a higher rate of sort of natural defenses um, but what concerns us is that uh, around April last year when we were in lockdown the government made it impossible to actually find out if you could be if you had COVID uh, by making the uh, introduction of antibody tests into New Zealand illegal and that hasn't I mean that that regulation has passed, but that that hasn't changed. We still can't find it, find out. Um, something else. You see, I would be really interested to hear your opinion on. Uh, now we haven't, you know, you've given us a good basis on how to treat people. At the moment, we are in what's called a level four lockdown in New Zealand. Uh, we've been in this lockdown. It must be coming up uh, two weeks soon. Um, that means we can't go anywhere, we can't do anything, we can't even order online a whole lot of products for fear of goodness knows what. Um, our, we, it's just crazy. And this time it has come with quite a lot more aggression uh, among the general public who are obviously scared witless about this Delta strain out there. Uh, we've, they've introduced a mask mandate and we haven't had that before. And now, you know, you can't go to the supermarket. People are being refused at the supermarket even with mask exemptions from purchasing food. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, do we need to be doing any of this? Lockdowns, masks, what are your feelings around those things? I testified the US Senate on November 19th and I was recovering from COVID. So if you look at some of the clips of that, I, my hair was a mess. I couldn't sleep the night before. I was having chest pain. I was having like five or six days of chest pain. My mask was hanging off one ear. And uh, you know, I told America, I said, listen, we have four pillars to pandemic response. We cannot put all our eggs in one or two baskets. So our way to control this is sure, we need to try to reduce the spread of the virus. That's pillar number one. Pillar number two is treat the problem. Very few people are gonna get it. And if we treat early, we can reduce the infectivity period from 14 days to four days. It's huge. If you just treat the problem, then the spread of the virus comes way down because Patients are able to stay in quarantine, they do their contact tracing, and the virus extinguishes itself in the home. Very important. If we don't treat it, patients get progressively sick, and then a high-risk senior goes into panic mode. After about two weeks, 
They start calling their family members. They come over. They contaminate their family members. They contaminate the drivers, the paramedics. They contaminate everybody on the way to the hospital in the panic for a hospitalization. So every single hospitalization is a super spreader event. And so the way to get control of it is pillar number two, treat early and keep this viral infection under control, reduce the intensity and duration of symptoms and reduce hospitalization death. And we've shown that in the published studies, the best we can do without large randomized trials, which will take years, we've shown 85% reductions in hospitalization and death with sequence multidrug therapy. It became a worldwide standard. Pillar number three is do the best we can in the hospital, make sure we have enough ventilators. We've learned not to put people on ventilators too early. We can ride this out for a long time. The most important drugs in the hospital are actually blood thinners because when uh, the oxygen saturation goes down and people need to go on the, the ventilator, their lungs are filling up with blood clots. So blood thinners, far more important than antivirals like remdesivir, et cetera. People have still haven't gotten that concept in the hospital. And then the fourth pillar. So we need to have emphasis on uh, these four pillars. What you've talked about with the idea of lockdowns uh, and, uh, and drastic measures is this idea that somehow the virus isn't gonna come back or you're gonna to get to zero cases. Well, that's not the case. And listen, I've been to New Zealand. I know what Kiwis are all about. Every Kiwi that gets to about age 17 or 18, I'm told wants to have an off island experience. That's actually part of going to high school. Listen, people in New Zealand, they go North Island, South Island. They like to move around. And, and this idea that you're not gonna move around for years, if not decades, and somehow the virus isn't gonna blow onto the island is crazy. The same thing with Australia. I know how much they depend on migrant workers from the Philippines, et cetera. I, I've been in Sydney Harbor just watching these ferries come in. I mean, come on. You know, the world today is a mobile world. The virus is going to move around. You're not going to get to zero cases. You have to have an early treatment program and you should take prudent measures. So let me tell you what prudent measures are. Knowing what we know now, we should never let a sick child go to school. Now, I think parents used to do that. They used to think, well, they have a call, but they're okay. No, not with this one, no. If a child is sick at school, we should make arrangements to put a mask on and then go home. Now we put a mask on, not because it's terribly effective. We just wanna, in a sense, reduce massive sneezing or contagion and get the child home. We should have flexible employers and work schedules to do that. That's very important. We should do the same thing with employees at work. That's the only reasonable thing that we should do. People have said, well, beyond that, what should we do? Should we lock down everybody who's not sick? No, they're not sick. And the good thing about COVID-19 is that we know that you can only transmit the virus when you're sick. So if you have two people who are not ill and they're out doing something, they can't get each other sick. So we don't have to worry about there. There's no such thing as asymptomatic spread. It's far less than 1%, two good papers, cow and Madewell have shown that uh, cow is in over 10 million people. So it's that's airtight that you don't spread it asymptomatically. So this idea that you'd lock down uh, to try to reduce asymptomatic spread, which doesn't happen, that's not supportable. So I'm here in Texas. Uh, we have, um, oh, maybe coming up on 40 million people in Texas. If we were to go outside my house right now and walk down the street, we have restaurants wide open. We have people sitting shoulder to shoulder, no masks. Not at all, nothing, okay? And I can tell you, we have, you mentioned 36 cases or 40 cases or 60 cases. We probably have that number of cases per hour right now. I mean, we're loaded with Delta. And you know what? It's business as usual. You know why? Because we're gonna treat sick people early at home 
and we're going to get through this illness and people have to go live their lives. We're going to have to get to natural immunity. I testified in the Texas Senate on uh, March 10th of this year that we were at 80% herd immunity. I used a standard calculation, a CDC calculation to get to that because we do have a, a big base of naturally immune people now. And the uh, uh, public health officials backed me up a few weeks later. And our baseball stadium here in Arlington, Texas, opened up on opening day, people, no masks, sitting shoulder to shoulder. And the departments of uh, community health were on top of it like crazy. They were waiting to find Dr. McCullough is wrong and we we're going to have a big super spreader event. Didn't happen. So what herd immunity means is it doesn't mean you're not going to have any cases. It just means that, um, and if we had 20% of the population get COVID-19 at it once, it'd be a disaster. But what it means is if someone gets the virus, it's not going to move too far in the population. New Zealand, you don't have that. I bet you don't have any herd immunity right now. So you do have a susceptible population. So you have to take reasonable, prudent measures for sick individuals, but under no circumstances should you have mock, uh, uh, lockdowns. We know public masking doesn't work. So putting masks on, on kids, are people wearing masks? You know, New Zealand is a lot of fit people. The, you know, wearing masks when you're out bicycling or driving by yourself, none of that uh, is uh, is supportable. In fact, there's been 12 randomized trials of masks. The most recent one, the Dan mask trial, zero benefit of public masking. Now, I think I'm a doctor. I wear a mask in the hospital every day. That's fine. I think doctors, nurses, barbers, dentists, people working at close range, and it's not to to, to reduce COVID-19 completely. It's just that if there was an accidental sneeze or cough, it kind of, it kind of contains that a, a bit. And, and I do it, uh, honestly, I do it out of a sense of courtesy because I'm a doctor, but under no circumstances should we have public masking. Mm. It's interesting because in New Zealand, our approach is not only hard and early with all of these measures, but we are going for an elimination strategy. That's been very clear for over a year now. Our strategy is elimination. It just seems absolutely bonkers to me. Um, can we talk about the vaccine a little bit? Because sure. I know that originally in your in your practice, you were vac people were being vaccinated, and and how, what were your feelings about it originally, and have they changed? Well, it had been come. It became known, I think, in April or May, that the virus was amenable to a vaccine strategy. In fact, there was great enthusiasm because. Uh, antibodies could be raised against the spike protein. They look like it really could neutralize the virus. So very early on, there was great excitement. Uh, I think it captured the minds of doctors. Doctors have always liked this idea of you know a vaccine and going back to Jenner and and the polio vaccine and this idea that we were going to you know wipe out disease with the vaccine. Uh, but uh, Linus Pauling. Uh, uh, has always said, listen, you're not, you're not going to want to invent the vaccine for the common cold. You, you know, something that's so mild in so many people, it's just not worth it to try to develop a vaccine, quite honestly. Um, and uh, another thing about vaccines are we always vaccinate in a targeted manner. We vaccinate people at risk for something at that time. And we just don't blanket people with the vaccine. And we've never vaccinated into the middle of a prevalent disease. Never. Absolutely never. So um, I published an op-ed in uh, a major journal in Washington, The Hill, last year, about a year ago, before the vaccines uh, came out and certainly before the data. And the title of the paper was The Great Gamble of the Vaccine Development Program. And I told Americans that, listen, I'm seeing a gamble here. 
Uh, we are not developing early treatments. Our government is not featuring early treatments. Our government's actually not even talking about early treatments. All we're doing in a sense is doing pillar number one, contagion control, and then waiting for a vaccine. In the meantime, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans are dying, millions are being hospitalized, the suffering is extraordinary. And wait a minute, a vaccine doesn't treat a sick person and a mask and hand sanitizer, they don't treat sick people. So we're actually not focusing on sick people. The problem is COVID-19 makes people sick. And there's very few sick people. In New Zealand, you have very sick people. If, if you actually just focused on the few New Zealanders, the few Kiwis that had COVID-19, you could have a very uh, focused program and handle the acute need. But this idea of incessantly focusing on everybody else other than COVID, it disturbed me. So I just didn't like the theme of that. And it seemed to me a gamble. We're gambling an immediate opportunity to save lives. And we're focusing on people that are a lot of people who are well are never going to get COVID-19. They're never going to come in contact with COVID-19. It's mathematically impossible. Well, sure enough, these large vaccine programs got going. Uh, there was a selection in the United States for novel technology, novel technology, technology that biologically had never been used before on a mass scale. Uh, the chosen technology was called genetic transfer technology, gene transfer technology, either messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA. There were 24 of these platforms available since the 1980s. They worked to transfer genetic information inside human cells in order to treat genetic deficiency states. That's what they were meant for. And they were meant to be long lasting. Even before we picked up on the vaccine program, if you were to review these messenger RNA products, for instance, they were designed to be in the body for months uh, in order to kind of continuously replace uh, protein products that were missing from genetically deficient individuals. And they were actually meant to apply normal genetic material to produce normal proteins. They were never designed to insert genetic code for an abnormal protein, let alone insert, insert genetic code for a dangerous um, uh, abnormal protein, which is the spike protein of the virus. So just as we started to lay out the concept that we were going to have a genetic transfer technology injected into humans, have human bodies take up this genetic material for an undetermined period of time, and have an uncontrolled production of the spike protein, which we know was dangerous, and have it expressed in cells, and then have our body attack our own cells, causing cellular and tissue destruction, and then having the spike protein then circulate in the body widely, causing more damage. We knew within a few months the spike protein was driving um, uh, injury to blood vessel cells. We published that from our lab. Uh, Dr. Zhang published that, causing blood clotting, which is a disastrous. That's the final common cause of death in COVID-19. To have a vaccine introduce the final cause of death in uh, an individual is really a startling idea. And then have this go on for an undetermined period of time. We later on learned it. The circulation is at least two weeks or more. Uh, we have a paper recently published with Dr. Karyakoulis, I'm the second author, suggesting these messenger RNA caps, these synthetic messenger RNA, stays in the body for a very long time. In fact, probably upsets the balance of energetics within cells uh, for a, an extraordinary long period of time. And then the spike protein itself, uh, much has been learned about it. It's a potent uh, interacting protein with two cancer genes, one's called the BRC, BRC, BRIC, BRCA gene for related to breast cancer in women uh, and other solid organ cancers, and then the P53 gene. 
So the spike protein is nothing but trouble. It looks like it's directly dangerous, short-term, may have long-term dangers. And these vaccines, in fact, trick the body into producing the spike protein. So that's just the biology of it. So it goes into large randomized trials. The majority of people recruited, about 60%, had no medical problems. Like we never see that in medicine. So these are well people. And then the results uh, came out right around the time I testified in the US Center on November 19th. And the final question we were asked from the majority leader was, do we have any opinion on the vaccines? And I can tell you, we said nothing. I said, we didn't say a word. It was interesting. We were mum. Now we had our masks on. We could have been, nobody could see our facial expressions. But what was going through my mind is, wait a minute. We have uh, two large vaccine trial programs, Pfizer and Moderna. They had recruited, you know, 35 to 40,000 individuals vaccinated. And the stunning result was there was less than 1% rate of COVID-19 in the placebo group and less than 1% in the vaccine group. They had recruited people that never came in contact with COVID-19. And so, you know, a huge number of people got these vaccines or got placebo and they never confronted COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. So the trials had what's called a tiny absolute risk reduction. And so when we see that in a population, we know, and there's a great analysis from Brown from Canada that showed this, that we knew the vaccines could never be a solution for COVID-19 because the absolute risk reduction is so sufficiently small. Now, what was touted was called vaccine efficacy, which is the relative differential rate of COVID-19. Vaccine efficacy is of 90% and people bought into it. People actually thought 90% meant 90% protection from the virus. Well, these come out there and as you implied, about 70% of my practice took the vaccine. Now, doctors didn't administer the vaccine. It was offered free of charge. In fact, radio commercials have been drumming for months on this and people literally just marched into vaccine centers and they were told to do it. They, a lot of them are patriotic. A lot of patients came in and said they took the vaccine and, and this was a, a great thing. And you know, I didn't know if it was good or bad. I didn't say much, um, but by March, we started to see disturbing trends. It became obvious to me uh, where uh, there were deaths that were occurring after the vaccine. And as I really dug into this, um, you know, we had already crushed the curve in the United States in January with early treatment. So the vaccine didn't have any role in crushing our late December, early January curve. Nobody was vaccinated. It was actually the treatment, the organization of the country into early treatment networks. We had four national telemedicine services, 15 regionals, you know, lists of treating doctors, our protocols, uh, home treatment guides. So we actually crushed our curves just like Mexico City crushed their curve, just like India did. So um, the vaccines came out. And as we look backwards, and I presented for leaders in Washington on this when I analyzed it, we actually had a problem January 22nd. And on January 22nd, you know, our program started, I think, December 18th. January 22nd, we had 186 deaths after the vaccine. The limit that we would expect for a program this size is about 150. We have 70 vaccines on the market. We give a 280 million shots a year in the United States, 150 deaths, not temporarily related to the vaccine. Here with COVID-19, we were at 186. I had missed it. I, you know, I just wasn't my business to follow the vaccine. I made, I didn't have any commentary on the vaccine in December, January, February. But by March, um, uh, you know, there was already 1,600 deaths that have occurred after the vaccine. 
And I can tell you, if we would have had a, a critical event committee, data safety monitoring board, human ethics committee, which should be installed in the Keyways in New Zealand, you should have these committees, external bodies of experts to actually supervise your program. As your government rolls out this program, you've got to have some external panels. Companies have board of directors, you have board of trustees, you have student councils, you have student bodies. We must have external experts who are providing some safety mechanisms to the program. If we would have had that in the United States, um, a data safety monitor board, and I do this, I've done this for um, the National Institutes of Health, I've testified for the FBA, the um, FDA, big pharma, big device companies, I've done this dozens of times. I can tell you, I would have, in a committee, shut down the US program in February because of excess mortality. Now, as we fast forward in March and then in June, the FDA and the CDC with very little fanfare said they reviewed all the deaths and none of them were related to the vaccine. Now, this includes people who died in the vaccine center. They're doing CPR with an obvious immediate allergic reaction and, 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 and people videoing it. They said none of them were related to the vaccine. I can tell you at 1600 deaths in March, and then I think it was 6,000 deaths in June, the a review of deaths involves two separate doctors, all the hospital records, all the labs, all the circumstances of the vaccine being administered, and then adjudication of what happened, and then agreement, was it related to the vaccine or not? I can tell you with 1,600 deaths, that would have taken months to perform, and under no way did the CDC and FDA actually perform a proper death analysis. They couldn't have. It just was logistically impossible. Now, in the last few months, people have gotten frustrated. They've gotten the data from the uh, CDC vaccine adverse event reporting system. We're currently at 1,300 deaths certified by the CDC. I'm sorry, 13,000 deaths certified by the CT CDC. Stunning. This is stunning. Uh, with the swine flu vaccine, you know, 25 deaths, the program was shut down. It ultimately got up to 53 deaths. We had vaccinated 55 million people in the United States, 500 cases of Guillain-Barre. It was considered a public health failure. And here at 13,000 deaths, uh, there's no mention of a public health failure. In fact, we've never had a press briefing on vaccine safety or efficacy. We should have had these weekly, if not monthly. Our CDC and FDA are delinquent. They still haven't made a single report. I bet the New Zealand government has not made a single safety report. You have 1.8 million people in your country vaccinated. I bet you haven't seen a single safety report. No country has. Everybody should be disturbed about this. Wait a minute, this is a big public program. Where is the reporting on efficacy and safety? Well, two separate reports, one by McLachlan out of London, uh, reviewed the data, reviewed the, uh, the vignettes that are available in VAERS and determined that 50% of these deaths occur within 48 hours of the shot. 80% occur within a week. They are very strongly temporally related. 86% of the time, there is no explanation, none. There's a report from Scandinavia, much smaller sample size in nursing homes. Two doctors did review all the deaths and they did roughly 40% were directly attributable to the vaccine. In fact, the person would be alive, the senior would be alive if they didn't take the vaccine today. And then an analysis by Rose and colleagues have shown that the non-fatal injuries are in four major areas, neurologic, cardiac, immunologic, and hematologic, and they tend to skew towards younger people mm. because probably the younger people take up more messenger RNA, they have a more vigorous spike protein production, and they cause even more damage in the human body. So we look in the yellow card system in the UK, the same pattern exists. 
So there is a very strong biologic plausibility, very strong temporal relationship. There's internal consistency within the US and then uh, uh, certainly within age groups and everything that we see. There's external consistency between the, the United States, the UK, the EU, uh, almost certainly Australia, New Zealand, if we can get the data. And on top of that, uh, it's very cohesive. That is, it's very consistent and the signal is large. There's a large association. We have just fulfilled all of Hill's tenets of causality, meaning that the vaccine is, we are very certain about this, the vaccine is directly killing individuals. This is a very important conclusion. It's directly killing individuals. And uh, 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 this is now, it's incontrovertible. There's, this cannot be dismissed. We've just seen it dismissed by U.S. Uh, uh, regulators on Monday when they uh, evaluated the data for Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. They actually said that they, they are dismissing all of the vaccine adverse event reporting system data. And so we are at a point of tension in the United States. I can tell you there's an internet survey. It's not on Twitter. The question was asked, do you know someone in your circle you know, extended circle, who's died of the COVID-19 vaccine in the US. We have half the country vaccinated. Answer, 12%. People are talking and, and you're talking about vaccine hesitancy. You know, no one's gonna wanna take a shot if they think that's gonna end their life. That is a full stop vaccine hesitancy. Mm. And I think it will take people talking to each other because we have here, we have these sort of pithy little reports that are put out every week that are about six weeks late to tell us what the side effects or adverse events are by our MedSafe agency. Um, so far, we have a number of deaths, a handful of deaths, maybe a few more that are have been logged like within the system, but none of those, but no one has died here of the vaccine, apparently. They deny anyone has died out of the 1.8 or so million people that have had a dose. Nobody has died. I mean, unrelated. Unrelated. Or, or I think there's a, a few that are under review, but they've been under review for months. Months, yes. Yeah. So this is most bizarre that we have this situation here, unlike, I mean, on the face of it, unlike the trends that seem to be happening overseas, we here only use the Pfizer vaccine. That's the only one we have. And even more worrying is we have one of our so-called experts is in control. And Ali, you're going to have to... Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but we have one of our experts who's in control of some international, she's been given a lot of money to monitor um, sort of underlying the background system, rates, background rates, no. yes, of illness. So she here, without supposed no deaths, is looking at background rates and seeing how the, how the uh, vaccine um, is hearing uh, impact. Yeah impacts yeah. the background rates. That's really worrying on an international level, I would think, um, that she's doing that. Can well, you, the, the, you know, one of the things we say in medicine is called primum no nocere. That is above all, do no harm. And we should have a focus on safety, 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 safety. And if we're going to have a vaccine program rollout with a novel gene transfer technology program with a dangerous mechanism of action, which Pfizer does have a dangerous mechanism of action, Boy, it better be safe. I mean safe. Now, if it was a drug and we we're going to ask, uh, you know, 1.8 million Kiwis to take a drug, I got to tell you, with about five deaths, it would get a warning saying, mm -hmm. say, warning could cause death. 50 deaths, it's off the market, gone. And um, we haven't even had a safety review in the United States 
and 13,000 deaths. This has become a crisis. Uh, several weeks ago, using Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, a lawsuit was filed against the federal government as, a, as a, asking for an injunction, stop the program, because the estimates are it could be 45,000 deaths, not 13,000, 45,000 deaths more. And I'll tell you how this happens. Um, I had a patient in my clinic who uh, got the uh, vaccine, I think it was Moderna, uh, got it in May, uh, after the second shot, developed blood clots throughout her body, which is what the spike protein does. She's hospitalized, needs blood thinners, sees me in follow-up. Um, uh, I, uh, I check ultrasound. She's got blood clots loaded in both legs and, and, and taken tremendous damage to her body. Um, I put her on additional blood thinners. I see her back. Uh, uh, she's still struggling. I got notified on Monday, a few days ago, by the Dallas coronary office that she died. She was oh, found no. dead at home. So I submitted her the original VAERS report to the system. It took me half an hour. I log in. I have to enter all the information. I have to have the lot numbers of her vaccine and when it was administered, all the details, her age, date of birth, where she was hospitalized, hospital address, laboratories. I mean, we're talking a lot of work. It took me half an hour. And when I fill out these forms, it says, warning, maybe put in prison or federal fine if you're falsifying a report. So when I tell you 13,000 people died, they really died and they're verified. And, and, and you know, 83% of these are done by doctors or nurses who think the vaccine caused the problem. And these numbers are astronomical. I said 13,000 dead. We have 200,000 that were hospitalized or had urgent care visits or ER visits um, uh, because of vaccine injuries. We have scores and scores of people permanently, neurologically damaged, crippled, disabled, heart attacks, myocarditis, blood clots. I mean, miscarriages, stillbirths. I mean, it's extraordinary what's going on. Anyhow, I fill out all these uh, forms and I submit it and it gets sent as temporary VAERS number. And I, I kept that VAERS number. Now I need to update the CDC that she's died. So today I went in, I said, update the record. And it says, well, I have to go and I have to tell the CDC I want to update the record. And then I have to wait for an activation link. I think I did that at like eight o'clock in the morning. I'm still waiting for my activation link. And, and, and you can imagine, God knows when that's going to come. It takes so much effort for me to report this case. Can you imagine how many cases were never reported? Well, can you imagine? Of, yeah. A lot of people don't even know that you can report. I mean, that's what's no. astounding. Uh, we were speaking to someone the other day who should be in a position where they're taking information about um, injuries, adverse events, and they didn't even know that we had a reporting system. I mean, that's outrageous. Well, let me I, tell you this vignette. I was called uh, this week by a doctor. She's in her 40s. And because, uh, you know, people see me on national TV or they they may have uh, seen my testimony or read some of, uh, of our um, papers or guidelines. And uh, she said, Dr. McCall, I'm a doctor myself in the Midwest. I took Moderna back in March and now I'm paralyzed. I have seizures. I'm in a wheelchair. I can't walk. And she was just telling me, and I said, do you think it was due to the vaccine? She goes, I was a perfectly healthy woman before I took the vaccine. And now I'm wrecked. I can't work. I'm on disability. And I, and I said, gosh, just, you know, how do you respond to that? And uh, I, I said, you know, did you report it to the CDC? Have you thought about going public so you can warn others? She goes, no. She goes, I didn't report it. And I didn't go public on it. I said, why not? She goes, my husband's a doctor and he's in the hospital. She goes, if I say anything against the vaccine, he's going to lose his job. She goes, I'm scared. Yes. So the fear is driving people to not report what's going on with the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And are you seeing um, more 
what are the instances of, of children? Like, I know that like you, uh, we have uh, the ability to vaccinate children down to 12 now. Um, we've just learned that they don't, we don't even have to, they can give their own consent as well here. Uh, but are you, what are you seeing among children that are getting vaccinated? It's, it's astonishing that a child age 12 could give consent for a fatal decision. And I think historians will look at that and under no circumstances, we don't let a 12 year old child decide on taking you know, penicillin, uh, let, alone, uh, let alone a fatal vaccine. So they're I think historians will look at Right. If there's a time for mothers, I asked at the very beginning, who's a mother on this call? If there's a time for mothers to step up and save humanity, now's the time. Under no circumstances should a 12-year-old child be approached about taking an investigational vaccine and potentially making a fatal decision. That child cannot compute all of those risks. Um, the other thing to be wary of in headlines, be wary of the word rare. Any assumption that things are rare is a false assumption. And here's the reason why. Because unless, unless one assesses everybody for the outcome, you cannot declare rare. I'm an epidemiologist. I'm trained in this. I'm telling you, that is out of bounds. We cannot declare something rare. When we talk about safety, the, the word we should use is tip of the iceberg. Whatever we're seeing reported through spontaneous reporting systems, there must be many more people that didn't report it, right? So the idea is myocarditis. It's not rare. It's not rare. United States now, we have full-throated 4,000 cases and strong. This is heart inflammation, tends to target young people. And the CDC and FDA looked at this in June. They had a universe of 600 cases. They had 200 cases to discuss. 90% of these kids were admitted to the hospital. That's how sick they were. They had chest pain, signs and symptoms of heart failure, high tr troponin, which is a test for cardiac injury, EKG changes, they had early signs of heart failure on echocardiogram in about a quarter. They required hospitalization monitoring. And I can tell you when the heart pumping function is down, by our guidelines, they have to be on heart failure medicines. I've seen these kids. Now they're in follow-up. We can't seem to get the troponins down. We are using heart failure drugs. Their lives as students are wrecked. Uh, they're trying to go to college and navigate where they can't participate in sports because we have to have no physical activity for three to six months. Now we're getting follow-up MRIs, echocardiograms. The, the parents are furious. Uh, the kids are symptomatic. We've already had two cases, uh, I think two or three cases progressed to um, uh, death and autopsy, failed heart transplantation. The FDA is telling us it's dangerous. The FDA has put out warnings, warning, warning, Pfizer, Moderna, myocarditis. So the FDA is telling us, I'm telling you as a parent, if you ask me, doctor, do you want to bring your child in and have a vaccine and there's a chance they can get myocarditis? No. H how many cases is worrisome? One. Mm. That's it. I just need to hear that once. It's out. It's mm -hmm. out. And I've told America, I've gone on national TV. I've said under no circumstances should anyone under 30 consider the COVID-19 vaccine. It's just not safe for people, for young people. COVID-19 is mild. When there are severe symptoms, it's easily treatable. One would never ask a young person to take on the risk. Remember, I told you at the very beginning, anybody takes a vaccine. The only circumstance I take the vaccine is to protect myself. We never give vaccines to young people to protect older people. And I think that's what the dynamic is. The dynamic is, let's put the risk on the children to somehow protect the adults. It's fundamentally wrong. It's immoral. It's unethical. It's illegal from a civil perspective. 
and children will be injured. Under no circumstances should it be done. Our FDA is trying to warn us. Let me give you an example. We have 20 million college kids in the United States go off to college, and we ask them to get the meningococcal vaccine, which is a protein-based vaccine. It's safe. And uh, in fact, they do because they're going to live in crowded conditions in the dorms. You know how many deaths we have with meningococcal vaccine? Zero. How many cases of myocarditis? Zero. That's the safety expectation of the COVID-19 vaccine. They better giving, be giving us cases of zero, not lighting up a scoreboard with thousands and thousands of injured people. It's wrong. Can I ask you, here in New Zealand, we've got a so-called expert who has told us in a, um, she did a, a public seminar a few weeks ago, and she said she was giving the um, appraisal of the what the background rates are versus the rates now and that but don't worry most of these cases of myocarditis are, are mild is there such a thing as a mild case in these young people i wouldn't assume it's mild uh, we have granular data on the cases i just reviewed for you by the cdc it takes a lot to hospitalize a 15 year old mm. it takes a lot believe me 90 percent hospitalized that's not mild that's not mild. So this assumption that it's mild is a false assumption. It's dangerous. Remember, we're, we're interested in safety. We're interested in doing no harm. We would never assume something is rare, and we don't assume something is mild. We assume just the opposite. We assume it's tip of the iceberg, and it could be severe, and we're going to take it seriously because it's our children. We care about them. So we don't make dismissive uh, or, uh, or minimize potential safety events. I'm telling you from a clinical investigation and a medical ethics and research ethics perspective, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Some, something else they've been talking about here, the government has it on its website and in a lot of the ads we have, uh, we like you have these ads that tell us over and over how safe it is and we do it for our families and our whanau, we say here. Uh, but one of the things they tell us is that this vaccine does not affect your, it does not interact with your DNA. I think that's the words they use. It doesn't interact, has no effect on DNA. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts around that, because I understand there's a Greek study that might be relevant to this. Is that right? Yeah. There's two papers, and one we've just come out, and also an author on the paper, um, we disagree. These nucleoside caps that's in the messenger RNA are so strong, uh, they appear to be making the messenger RNA very long lasting. And we know this because the antibody production stays up for a very long time. We must be producing a ton of spike protein for a long time. And uh, on top of that, uh, they're not easily broken down. Typical messenger RNA is used one time and it's digested by an RNAase. Uh, this isn't the case. The, this, this messenger RNA may be passed on to daughter cells. And the concern is if it stays around long enough, it's going to reverse transcribe and then insert some of the DNA that's coded off the RNA into our chromosomes. And there's a region uh, where that's handled. It's called the HERV region. Uh, it's a little bit spooky for you to think, but each one of you are carrying um, DNA in your body, that's not human DNA. We actually do carry vestigial remnants of viral infections forward. You know this because if you've ever gotten a cold sore, you know you're carrying the DNA for the herpes zoster virus and the same thing Epstein-Barr and others. Um, so we know that we do carry viral genetic material forward. And the concern is we reverse transcribe and actually carry forward genetic material from these vaccines. These vaccines, by the way, were designed to do this 
it, when they treated chronic disease. So it, it's a, you know, it is, um, it is a mm -hmm. open debate on whether or not they permanently change the human genome. Um, one thing that's clear though, is if they start to get into this HERV region, we would reactivate other viruses. And that's already, this already happened. So we know that with um, the, the respiratory syndrome, we know that herpes uh, zoster can reactivate and have shingles. And now uh, we've seen that with the vaccine. The vaccine can clearly reactivate shingles. And in fact, I'm aware of one case, like a direct case that I've observed, even through shedding. You've probably heard about someone getting the vaccine and then they produce enough spike protein and it can be transferred potentially through blood or body fluids or, or, uh, or your genital. So this was a case of close contact. It was probably oral and probably um, sexual contact uh, of a man and a woman, but the, the, of a vaccinated man to a woman. And then she expressed it. She felt sick for a day or two. And then she actually had um, zoster uh, shingles come out in her back and a young woman in her twenties or thirties shouldn't happen. So, um, uh, so uh, it's suspicious that um, in fact, we, we could have reverse transcriptions, not proven, um, but it's a great concern. We have so many concerns with this vaccines. You just can't imagine uh, long-term, but we should probably turn our attention to efficacy and make a few comments there. Yeah, let's do that because I actually wanted to raise the issue of boosters, uh, which kind of ties in nicely to that. We've just had a situation here in New Zealand where out of uh, 750 people that were given a, the vaccine on one particular day, it looks as if five of them had saline for whatever reason. I don't know quite why they had vials of saline there, but whatever. Um, anyway, what the answer to that appears to be, although there's, they haven't firmly said it yet, but what the answer appears to be is, don't worry, get another dose because you're going to have a, a booster in time anyway. And it's almost as if the more the merrier. It seems to be the approach. I'm wondering when you're looking at the US now, I've heard you speak about other variants popping up. We have um, coming out of vaccine programs. There's a variety of names I wrote down, Lambda, Epsilon, you know, we have Delta. What are you seeing in terms of efficacy of the vaccine for your population going into the autumn, into your fall? Um, I think, you know, what do you think might happen? Uh, and it, it could be disastrous, I think. Okay, so let's just uh, craft uh, an efficacy timeline. So the clinical trials were started last summer. Uh, we largely have the wild type Wuhan spike protein. That's the vaccines coded off the original one. That's the code, 1200 amino acids. That's the code in messenger RNA. Yeah. Um, so the vaccine is actually coded to the exact code of the spike protein. Um, they come out of clinical trials and the answer is 90% vaccine efficacy. And we'll just take that as a, as a fair endpoint, 90% vaccine efficacy. Within a few months, there's a report from a large nursing home in Scandinavia that said, you know, among the nursing home workers, we have 90% efficacy. This is with messenger RNA vaccines, but we only have 60% efficacy in the nursing home residents. This is about a 30,000 patient study. And it's hard to calculate outside of a randomized trial, but in enough cases, you can get an idea if the vaccine's protecting. So when we look at the vaccines, you have Pfizer, which is 30 micrograms per dose of messenger RNA, and you have Moderna. They're very similar. They're in a lipid nanoparticle, messenger RNA, very similar. Moderna is 100 micrograms per dose, 100. So Moderna and Pfizer, just on face value, very different in terms of doses. 
Then we have AstraZeneca and J&J, that's adenoviral. So it's not even micrograms, it's actually the number of particles, probably billions of particles that are given in an injection of AstraZeneca and, um, and Johnson and Johnson. Then other vaccines we won't cover. There's Sinovac, which is a dead vaccine and Sputnik and others. But if we just go with the, the big pharma vaccines, but my point is they're very different, okay? And so, uh, so we had a sense early from that Scandinavian nursing home study, wait a minute, older people are not protected so well. Now, Johnson & Johnson, when that came out in March and AstraZeneca, they never hit 90% vaccine efficacy. They were always 70% vaccine efficacy. So I thought it interesting among regulators where they would say, listen, just take any vaccine. doesn't matter. Take any vaccine. It's like, wait a minute, isn't this about preventing COVID? And if we have lots of, why wouldn't we just take the ones that are 90% instead of 70? Why is any vaccine okay? And from the very beginning, the discussion was, listen, any vaccine's okay. To this day, just take anyone, take anyone. So wait, you know, wait a minute, we're Americans in, in Kiwis. You like to make choices. You want to pick the best one. So this kept rolling and rolling. And what we started to hear is we started to hear about vaccine failures, vaccine failures. Now, when someone naturally gets the infection and recover, we never hear about failures, never. Never. There's been maybe somebody tries to find a case. Oh, they got COVID-19 twice. And we look at it and it turns out it's a false alarm from a false positive PCR. So it's one and done with the natural infection. Zero natural immunity failures. You know, by May 1st, our Center for Disease Control has 10,000 vaccine failures, probably with the UK variant and early variants. 10,000. And they were pushed forward from departments of community health. So it's not the totality of cases. It's just what got reported in. And what we learned is that 9% uh, were hospitalized and 3% died. I said, boy, that doesn't sound good. 10,000 is kind of a big number. That's a lot of people fully vaccinated getting sick. Um, and then the CDC said, listen, we're overwhelmed. We can't deal with this anymore. We're not going to report any community vaccine failures. So the CDC put advice out to people who took the vaccine. They said, listen, don't get any more tests. Decline the tests. We're not going to track it. In a sense, there was an assumption that if someone got COVID-19, it was that they were unvaccinated. And they created what's called asymmetric reporting or just, just basically a talking point that this is uh, you know, an unvaccinated situation because we our vaccine cards that we give uh, individuals, uh, they're not like a driver's license or anything. There's no barcodes. They're literally just handwritten cards. There's no scanner on it or anything. So these vaccine cards are what's supposed to identify a person. So you can imagine if they go for another COVID-19 test, no one's trying to interpret the card. The test just turns positive. They get reported to a center. So there's actually no accounting of vaccine status uh, clinically anywhere along the lines. And many patients, you know, they get hospitalized. They don't have all their paperwork. So no one actually really knows who's vaccinated in the United States. There is a vaccine electronic system, but it's not linked to the testing system. So in the United States, we're flying blind. And, and we only get these cases that departments of community health report to the CDC. So the next milestone is in July 26. Now there's a report, 6,000 Americans fully vaccinated in the hospital and 19% die. That's actually a higher percentage death that we currently would have in the hospital for all hospitalized individuals. So that was a disturbing report. So we are looking elsewhere quickly and, and you probably are well aware of this in Israel, far more than 80% of people who are developing COVID-19 are fully vaccinated. The Delta peak in Israel is just as big as the pre-vaccinated peak. And they have 
80, over 80% 80 of Israeli Jews are vaccinated. It's not overall because they have a mixed population of Israeli Arabs. The overall number is more like 50%, but they actually have a, they have two big peaks now, one unvaccinated, one fully vaccinated. It's obvious the vaccine is not stopping Delta. Almost everybody has uh, 80, 90%, 100% Delta. Go over to Singapore, same thing. Go over to Iceland, same thing. Uh, Gibraltar, same thing. Uh, go up to the UK, a little different because they have Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca, now we're talking about probably 50% of those with Delta are fully vaccinated. Um, uh, and of those who are dying in the UK, it's about 65% fully vaccinated. Okay, 65%. And the death rates among those hospitalized uh, with Delta in the UK, as well as the United States, the death rates are higher than compared to unvaccinated. Now, it may be that the vaccinated are older and their seniors are higher risk and the unvaccinated are younger, but it's a disturbing uh, pattern. Now with the biology comes in, we had a series of events. Uh, we had a, um, a wedding in Houston, Texas, everybody vaccinated, they get sick with COVID. We have a, a, a democratic lawmaker flight from Texas to uh, Washington. They get off the plane, they get sick with COVID. They, they uh, scare the vice president. She goes scrambling to Walter Reed Hospital, doesn't have COVID. Um, but there's obvious fully vaccinated groups of people around each other and they're developing COVID. Then we have the, uh, the naval cruise vessel from the United Kingdom, 3,700 sailors. Again, they're out in the uh, Mediterranean, they get COVID. So a paper by um, Fahrenholt in Houston studied these individuals and they were the one to break the news that a fully vaccinated person could get Delta, contract it and pass it to another vaccinated person. Venkata Krishnan started studying this and found that the Delta variant, the, the spike protein had uh, changed its conformation where the antibodies from Pfizer cannot hit it. So the, the antibodies from Pfizer now are useless. Even in high concentrations, they can't seem to hit Delta adequately. And then this whole thing blew open last week with a report out of Oxford, the tropical medicine unit located in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. And there, there was an outbreak within a hospital uh, they were able to actually to lock down the hospital. They didn't let the workers leave. The workers were in their quarters. They were fully vaccinated workers with AstraZeneca about two months after being vaccinated. So as good as you're going to get. And they started to develop Delta, okay, amongst themselves. And they had detailed sequencing. So they knew it's not only Delta, but they actually knew exactly what substrains were being passed to one another. They knew they were passing it to each other. It was so well uh, done. It was a very well done study. It was published in Lancet. And then the bombshell finding was that the viral loads in the mouth and nose of those vaccinated were 251 times that from the, the uh, previous unvaccinated era. So as we sit here today, the vaccinated are, it appears to be super spreaders. They're carrying large amounts of virus and then passing it to the unvaccinated, creating the Delta pandemic. And it does appear to be a disaster. In the United States, most of the seniors are vaccinated. Old people are vaccinated. And who's getting Delta? It's all the young people. And we're even seeing some deaths of people in their 30s and 40s. It's tragic. And it looks like it's a crisis of the vaccinated and the victims are the unvaccinated. And, and what about how it is affecting the vaccinated people? We hear about large numbers of death. And so on the one hand, we have this idea where the vaccine is providing them with a very narrow 
protection and all of these other things are still going to affect them. How does ADE come into this? Because ADE was something that was talked about really early on with the, the worries about developing these vaccines for coronavirus because they'd never been able to get around it. Uh, what are we seeing in terms of ADE? Antibody-dependent enhancement, ADE, is the idea that a vaccine could backfire. And if you took the vaccine, you're just more likely to, to contract the illness or die than if you don't. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure if we've seen that, but just to, to fill in the, the, and this is important since you're using Pfizer, it was shown in the Pfizer original FDA application that after the first shot, one is more likely to contract COVID than if they never took the shot to begin with. And that may be kind of immature libraries of antibodies that allow viral entry initially before they get the full uh, library of, um, of neutralizing antibodies. So there may have been some ADE, and that was shown in France and Israel elsewhere. It looks like it's real. And I've had plenty of patients who get the first shot and they get COVID. I've mm. seen it over and over again. So that, that may be a kind of a mini form of ADE in terms of acquisition. But what the data from Lancet and Ho Chi Minh City are suggesting is that it may be ADE in terms of population. It is antibody-dependent enhancement of carriage of large viral loads and then hitting somebody who's susceptible and not vaccinated. Um, this is really kind of shaping up to be a, a disaster. I don't think anybody uh, had really completely expected this, um, but now it looks like, and this idea of vaccinating into us, let me give you an idea now. The Israeli health ministry has Pfizer fully vaccinated at 39% protection. The Mayo Clinic in a paper by Piranek and colleagues, 23,000 people, Rochester, Minnesota, they have Pfizer at 42% protective. They have Moderna at 72%. Again, Moderna is three times the dose of Pfizer. And this is less than a year. Now, the minimum criterion for a vaccine to even be viable is that a vaccine should at least last a year. All experts agree on this. And with uh, Pfizer, Moderna, you actually get two shots. So we're already priming the system. You should for sure last a year. It looks like they're not. And we should at least hit 50% protection and we don't. So Pfizer looks like it's a failed vaccine. And already Israel is saying boosters are rolling out. The United States boosters for immune deficient individuals. And um, uh, the boosters are not adjusted for Delta. They're not adjusted even for the UK or Lambda or Eta. It's more of the same. It's mm. more of the same vaccine that's not hitting the target right now. So the vaccine program is rapidly uh, um, uh, spiraling out of control. Pfizer is really losing on Monday uh, in the United States. Pfizer went up for approval and Pfizer was not approved. Pfizer actually was given a continuation of the EUA. They were not approved. They had split the application into BioNTech, which is a German company. BioNTech uh, did get conditional approval. And there was a, um, a draft uh, a label uh, created for uh, BioNTech. It's going to be called Comirnaty. Uh, that's going to be the name of the product. But there was a demand for post-marketing studies. Four of them stated regarding myocarditis. So now mm -hmm. BioNTech has to study myocarditis in four separate studies. The latest they can submit the data is 2027. It's unclear. BioNTech doesn't even have a website for this product right now. Uh, they don't have a commercial team. They don't have any commercial operations. So um, what came out of that meeting on Monday was in two weeks, uh, BioNTech has to pr uh, produce a final label. And I think there's another meeting um, 
I think there's another meeting uh, in, uh, in several weeks, but the point is th there was basically a fraudulent talking point that came out and our president even got on national TV and said Pfizer had full approval and we are looking at the FDA letters. And I can tell you, I do this for a living. I mean, I chaired day safety monitoring boards. I presented before the FDA, I've been on the panels. They weren't approved. There was, no brief, there was no briefing booklet. Normally there's a, about an 80 to 120 page briefing booklet from Pfizer. They give the data to the FDA. They make their own briefing booklet. They come together. Uh, this is a giant, there's usually a committee of experts. Mm. I mean, this is a big deal. None of this, none of this. There was a 12 page letter that went to Pfizer that didn't say they were approved at all. It just said continuation of the EUA. And then there was this letter to BioNTech saying, listen, you've got you to study myocarditis. You got a problem here. It's interesting. So there was no approval. Yeah, although you see, the thing that bothers me is that the product we use here in New Zealand is that Comerv Tech or whatever you call it, Comerv Tech. That is what we have here from the beginning. Community. Um, community. Like I can't community. say it. I don't even know if I want to bother learning it. But um, <laughs> but but that is what we've had here from the beginning. So we have, you know, we as far as we're concerned, apparently we have this approval for this product. I see that it needs to have almost a post-marketing thing happening I just legally I'm I just need to look at it more to work out how we fit into this scenario because we don't have the product that has now been given an extension well, to the you can think about it you know if a product is approved yeah and approval basically you know what approval is approval is the approval to market and sell a product yeah. that's what they're applying for so and the label is an approval of marketing language Yes, that right. means that means someone's going to buy this vaccine. Who's going to buy the vaccine? In the United States, they're provided free of charge under the EUA. So if BioNTech is going to try to sell the vaccine and Pfizer is offering it EUA, or they can someone can get Moderna, which looks like it's more effective, who in the world is going to buy this vaccine? What what health insurance company is going to cover it? I mean, it looks like a total bust. Uh, how are they going to do fair, balanced language in the label? It looks like the label is just using the legacy data from the original trials, there's no data on Delta. So I what's think, in the label, the label's completely irrelevant. They have to update it with data mm, from Delta. I, I wonder if the New Zealand government's already bought it all. <laughs> That's my worry. I mean, but but honestly, you can't, you can't make it up in terms of, in terms of uh, ineptitude and regulatory malfeasance and just things that just are just off the rails. So it's yeah. a combination of ineptitude, it's a combination of malfeasance, propaganda. I bet New Zealand has no doctor that has any type of publication track record on TV. I bet they have no doctor that's actually ever treated a COVID patient or even seen a COVID patient trying to advise the Kiwis. When you think about this, this is off the rails. It's it is off, off the rails. rails. So and how I think does it... Yes, yeah, sorry. You finish. I just think at this point in time, the public should understand that this is not going to fly. And there needs to be some backbone. You, you know, in the military, they're saying, well, you've got to take this or you're going to be dishonorably discharged or we're going to force it on you. And I said, boy, their bullets better fly and bones better break because this vaccine is not worth losing anybody's jobs over. It's not worth mandating on anybody. It doesn't work. It's not safe. You can't build policy on it. It's completely experimental. It just looks like a disaster. You know, when I presented 
to a think tank in Washington called the Heritage Foundations. They really advise a lot of groups in Washington. I presented vaccine safety, largely what we talked about tonight. When I finished, you could hear a pin drop. I said, you know, I was waiting to get shelled with questions. And finally, one very senior advisor said, Dr. McCullough, we have the biggest biological catastrophe on our hands in human history. We've had two presidential administrations buy into it, the entire media, the entire uh, uh, corporate world, uh, the entire travel world, all other countries, and we have, no, we have no idea how to stop it. And that's really what's happened here. We have an out of control snowball of a biological catastrophe, and we're doing it to ourselves. We're mm. doing it at the point of a needle. And, mm. and honestly, the correct thing to do is never have that needle get close to your arm. It's pretty obvious. That's the line. Mm. So that was my question to you. H how does this end? <laughs> how do you think this ends? It, it, it ends by a large enough people saying, no, we're not going to take it. You know, we've got a wonderful rap song in the United States, RC Rapper. It's said, just say no. And it's about a young kid who just doesn't understand why this vaccine and and why he, you know, he's only sick for a couple of days and why does he have to lock down? And it boils down to the fact that it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be backbone. It's like you cannot be asked to take something into your body that doesn't work and that's dangerous and, and think it's okay. You can't link that to your freedoms. You can't link that to, it can't be a linkage to anything. It's got to be something that quickly gets far away from you. And people say, well, I'm going to lose my job. I said, no job's worth it. Oh, my, my child can't play football. I can't have school. It's not worth it. I'm telling you, I'm just way too many people dead and way too many people injured. And, uh, you know, if you're pitted with the idea of lose your life or lose your job, you are gonna have to lose your job and figure out something because or we're just going to have to have to have enough backbone. Mm -hmm. We are <coughs> filing lawsuits in the United States, you know, as our way of trying to uh, negotiate here like crazy. And you know what? We're getting nowhere. We're getting nowhere. Because there's a mentality. Once somebody takes the vaccine in their mind, they think, listen, I took the risk. I took the risk. Now you have to do it. That's right. And that, that mentality is a very dangerous mentality. Um, listen, I know the vaccine worked out great for a lot of people, we think. People in my family took the vaccine. Okay, wonderful. If they got some benefit out of it, fine. But that doesn't mean the next child that's injured or the next person that dies, it doesn't mean that's okay. It's very important. It doesn't mean just because someone took the vaccine and they did okay, it doesn't mean it's okay to harm the next person. That's, that's terrible. And the other thing that's not okay is to eliminate someone's freedom of choice. There's a principle of autonomy that says that no one under any circumstance, under any circumstance, at any time in their life, should receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal for taking an injection into their body. And no one should ever take an injection that they perceive could damage them. Mm. And everybody listening to this to understand this vaccine that you have can damage you. And there's no doubt about it. The scoreboard is lit up as bright as it can be. Death, hospitalization, cardiac, neurologic injury, miscarriage, stillbirth, paralysis, permanent disability. It can't get worse. It honestly can't get worse. I can't think of any drug or any injection that is this dangerous as this group of vaccines, in particular your Pfizer vaccine.
There are a lot of doctors in New Zealand who uh, a significant number of doctors in New Zealand have had this vaccine themselves. I'm wondering how many of them are cottoning on to any of this or if they're aware um, th they're not speaking up. We do have a, a group of doctors speaking up here, over 50 now, but it's not many. What would you say to doctors who, who they should know this or they maybe they do know this, but they're just feeling too nervous to say anything? I mean, they've had these letters saying thou must not say anything negative about the vaccine. They've presumably had it themselves. Have you got any anything you can say to them? Yeah, you know, I'm in a position of medical authority, so it's a little bit different. I've actually never had a doctor look me in the eye and have a conversation about this where they where we exchanged views on it. I've never had the doctor actually have the courage to either call me up or email me or talk to me straight up about something like this. And doctors, we always talk about this. We get in meetings and we talk about safety and efficacy. Some doctors think, oh, this Lipitor is dangerous or this drug is dangerous or that. And we, listen, we use drugs that are dangerous. We, we do things in medicine. I mean, if you could see some of our chemotherapy that we use, holy smokes. I mean, it's just, you know, we do stuff in medicine. We talk about it. The vaccine is very interesting. No doctor in the world has had the courage to have just a conversation with me. And I've been talking to you for over an hour. I'm not that imposing of a figure. They don't have even a shred, a kernel of courage to even have a conversation with me or any one of my colleagues on this topic. So people have asked the question, do doctors really know what's right and wrong and are they afraid or are they in a trance? Are they in a mass psychosis? I think they're in a mass psychosis. I honestly think doctors right now, uh, because of a year and a half of year, they've actually been fearful they were going to get the virus themselves. And this, uh, they, they've, been, they've been kind of allured into this propagandized uh, set of information that they were going to be saved by a vaccine, buy into the vaccine. And I think it worked. I think there was very specific propaganda. There was uh, the doctors who have bought into the vaccine wholesale none of them have tried to treat COVID, none of them. They have literally, they've bought into this idea of suppress any hope of treatment, promote as much fear, suffering, hospitalization and death, and then promote the vaccine wholesale and absolutely don't even recognize vaccine injury. That's actually what's in the minds of doctors and mid-level providers, PAs, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, it's interesting. There is a mass psychosis, a mass brainwashing of these doctors that, and I told you about the doctor who was actually damaged by the vaccine and she won't mm -hmm. say a word because of fear. Mm -hmm. So I think fear is scripted. You, we're not going to look for the doctors to save us here. The doctors, in a sense, are a lost cause. There may be some hope among the nurses. Uh, and again, the mothers are going to save the world. And we've had in Dallas, nurses have had rallies. They're saying, listen, I'm not taking the vaccine. I've seen too many injuries. There's so many nurses who are COVID recovered. They have natural immunity. Why should they take the risk of a vaccine? In fact, the vaccine doesn't work in them. It just causes more harm. We have huge numbers like that. Um, why would they? So they're not going to. So the nurses are protesting. Um, uh, we're coming to a showdown of major proportions. You know, all these hospitals issued the mandate. And uh, when the Department of Justice, the United States said, you know what, you can do this, even though it's experimental. And even though, you know, this and that, you can do it. 
And uh, there's a lead hospital in Houston, Houston Methodist Hospital, one of the best ones uh, in Texas. Uh, they got to the point where they told they they, they uh, you know were offering the vaccine. They, people didn't want to take it, didn't want to take it. They'll say, "Well, I'll pay you five hundred dollars." Didn't want to take it. They, they give all these inducements. Finally, they said, "Listen, if you don't take it, we're going to fire you." And a lot of these nurses said, "Listen, we're pregnant. We 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 were trying to have our babies with fertility." They said, "We don't care. Take mm -hmm. it." And the nurses said, "We're not going to." So they fired them. They fired about two hundred nurses, and that was a real shot. To say, listen, we mean business. You're going to lose your job if you don't take the vaccine. And so that was uh, uh, filed at a lower court. And the judge, who was a woman, wrote a, wrote a half a page decision and said, sorry, fire him. And then this was now it's going up appellate and then to the Supreme Court. So these women have lost their job. And uh, that was a real sign. And the other health administrators were saying, boy, if Houston Methodist can get away with this, well, we can get away with it. Well, you know, we've got some issues. United States right now, we've got a very constrained labor market. We don't have a lot of people on the sidelines. And if a lot, if people walk off the job and they say, listen, this vaccine looks unsafe and I'm just not going to risk my life on it for a nursing job and then get jobs anywhere, uh, then then we'll see what happens. There, there won't be enough doctors to walk off the job because they already took it. Mm -hmm. And doctors, some doctors have been damaged. Uh, others haven't. And uh, for instance, I know uh, interventional cardiologist, good friend of mine, he took Pfizer uh, back in January. He has incessant ringing in his ears. He has tinnitus, morning, noon, and night. Can't sleep with it. It's absolutely ruined his life. And then, you know, I talked to him. He goes, well, at least I didn't get COVID. And I was like, you know, is that much of a consolation prize? I, I just flew this weekend. I sat next to a, a gal um, who I struck up a conversation with. She goes, yeah, my son is a student at University of Texas in Austin. He's 22. And he took the vaccine. I said, well, why do you take the vaccine? She goes, well, he, he thought he should. And he took it. And uh, she goes, well, he was in the hospital for two days afterwards. And I said, why? She goes, we're not sure. He got really sick. And he said, now he's left for months now. He has incessant headaches. His headaches are so bad. He's seen neurologists. He's had MRIs, what have you. He's about ready to drop out of school with incessant headaches. I mean, these types of things, these stories are common. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is, especially the neurologic, and I've seen some of the neurologic syndromes, I got to tell you what, I want to live to a nice old age, and I don't want to have a neurologic problem that I'm seeing develop. And, and Senator Johnson in the United States held a press briefing. It was so bad. He held a press briefing, the first vaccine injury press briefing, and people showed up, yeah. and they told their story. And the horrifying thing of this is that many of these people were doctors or nurses and they participated in the original clinical trials and their syndromes didn't evolve for six to nine months later. And they had this one girl, she's paralyzed, she's in a wheelchair, she's got a feeding tube, she took one of the vaccines. The parents are horrified. Uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies aren't responding. They're, you know, everything's indemnified. And if, if there is a late emergence of these neurologic syndromes, or if we keep uh, increasing the risk with these um, with these uh, boosters. Remember, for each successive shot, there's about an 80-fold increased risk of the side effects. If we keep jamming the system and genetically loading the system, I think it's a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. Peter, I, I just wondered, you know, everything you've said is going to be so helpful for people on this call and to share with friends and family. But if you were one of these experts that you were talking about being an advisor to the New Zealand government that was standing outside and talking to them, you know, what, what would you say right now? Because we are facing a crisis with um, mandated uh, frontline workers, 
you know, our emails are jammed with hundreds and hundreds of emails of people, you know, being told you're the weakest link. You've got to go home, not no pay, leave the office now after, you know, 15 years service. What will you tell as an expert, our, our government, what would you say to them right now? Also touching on kids, it's just come out 12 to 15 year olds and pregnant women, all of that. It just seems it's, it's atrocious what's happening. Well, the first thing I'd say is, is, is have an early treatment program. And I have advised government successfully. I advised um, Sri Lanka, for instance, things were out of control. They, they immediate pivot to early treatment, treat early treatment centers, using COVID recovered patients as workers and Sri Lanka got right out of it. Um, I think honestly, the vaccine program is a bigger problem than COVID in New Zealand. And I think if you just focused on treating the small number of COVID people, if tomorrow the vaccine went away in New Zealand, Honestly, it'd be a national holiday. It would be a national holiday. If you just, if, if vaccine program went away and you just returned to normal, no lockdowns, nothing else, and just treated the small number of people with COVID-19, it would, would be a national holiday. I'd come over there and we'd celebrate together, um, preferably South Island. Um, but um, uh, uh, the vaccine, in a sense, has become a, a menace. It's, it's been a propagandized, socially weaponized menace. And it's, it's terrible that we found out the vaccines don't work and they're not safe. I mean, that's the problem. Like, you know, vaccinate the healthcare workers. What's that going to do? It's probably going to worsen COVID-19. They're more likely to get it and carry it and get sick. I mean, it's just, it's actually, it'd be better to have unvaccinated workers. So um, uh, what I would advise is uh, an immediate halt to the vaccine program. And I wouldn't be the first one. This has been advised by the Evans-based consulting group in the UK. They're the chief uh, contract consulting group to the World Health Organization. They reviewed the yellow card system, just like tonight. I reviewed the VAERS system with you. And uh, their formal recommendation is shut down the program, not safe. There was a French group early in March that advised the EMA shut down the vaccine program. Bruno and colleagues, 57 authors, 17 countries, I'm an author. A little softer recommendation said, listen, if you can't get safety evaluated, this back in May, shut down the program. We've had uh, citizen petition groups from um, multiple doctors and nurses, two different letters into our US FDA to say, don't approve the vaccine. Maybe our letters had an impact on the FDA decision not to approve Pfizer. We have had uh, demand letters into the CDC, legal demand letters saying to recognize natural immunity. So I advise New, uh, New Zealand immediately to drop the vaccine program if they wanted to make it elective and purely voluntary, maybe for seniors or nursing home workers, maybe um, uh, immediate uh, um, uh, immediate uh, dissolution of any lockdown or prohibition program, complete return to work to normal. Um, you know, masking maybe for doctors, nurses, dentists, uh, barbers, others at close contact, um, having good oral nasal hygiene. Uh, you know, having some prophylactic programs in place. You can have some medicinal prophylactic programs, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. Should should be featuring a monoclonal antibody program for high-risk seniors. It's just actually a more patient-centered approach um, as opposed to a, a, a population-based uh, weaponized vaccine approach. It's very different. It feels like a much more humane approach, actually, where we actually care for the people that need it. Yeah. rather than tell them that they have to stay home and they can only go to the supermarket in a mask. And if you can't wear one tough, go back home. It, it feels much more humane to me to actually look after them properly. Um, you've given us so much of your time. I'm, you're so, so generous of you. I hope we were um, worthy of letting the TV slot go. 
but it's been absolutely wonderful to hear from you. You're a mine of information. Your experience is extraordinary. You're, you know, you're, you're so well qualified to speak on this. And I hope people appreciate that. You're an expert in this area. And uh, we just thank you for, for sharing your knowledge with us. It's incredible. And um, us mothers down here, we're going to keep on fighting. We sure will. We're not going to give up. Well, the mothers are going to save it. And, uh, you know, your secret to success uh, at this point in time is not to take the vaccine and to really be alert in, uh, in prevention and treatment of COVID-19. If you can stay on those principles, um, I think everything is going to fall away. Um, there's great concern that the vaccine program will be by physical force at some point in time. It's, it's happened on some of the uh, places in Indonesia. It may happen in the U.S. military. I'm going to be watching this pretty closely. But if we see a physical force of injection of va vaccines against people's will, um, I, I think the calculus changes dramatically. Yeah. And, um, and at that point in time, there's no rules. Um, this is very important. When there's, when there's no rules, that's different. When there's no rules, that's anarchy. Yeah. And it may be anarchy for a reason. Um, but when there's no rules, what that means is it's really the strongest that survives. And I, I think those who are driving vaccine to that level are going to are going to really learn some hard lessons. Mm, I suspect you might be right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you, everyone who joined us. It was it's stuck around. There were over 3000 of you today. That's yeah. amazing. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. And there will be a recording so you can catch it later. Yes. Thank yeah. you, uh, Peter. Enjoy yeah. the rest of your evening. And we will talk Thank to you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.